Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Yvette. A focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette. And I'm Ellen. And this week we have a very exciting guest. All our guests are exciting, but this one happens to be a double Olympic champion and mental health campaigner. She also has a new podcast out on Audible called What Do I Do? Mental Health and Me. She is Dame Kelly Holmes. And before we get going on this episode, important thing to put in your planner right now is that we're doing our first ever event. It's a chat about mental health in the workplace and it's happening on the 11th of April. That's a Thursday at 7pm at High Street Kensington Waterstones. Our speakers are Natasha Devon, Dr. Pragya Agarwal, Carl Anker and Matthew Todd. See you there. I would say the main big explosion ahead was in 2003. I was getting ready for a world championships in Paris. I've been an international athlete for 11 years by then and been in the military for nearly 10. Um, and I was training for these championships, ended up getting injured again. And uh, it just, I don't know, everything crashed. I remember just going into the toilet looking in the mirror, hating everything about myself, wanting the floor to open up, jumping it and close over me, basically not wanting to be there. Saw some scissors inside, started cutting myself for every day that I'd been injured, which had been a lot. And when you've got shorts and a crop top on, it's not that many places to hide. And then just basic in a mess at that stage. And that was when it kind of almost everything came crashing down. 
I mean, I think if you look back on it, you probably would think, well, you're obviously vulnerable to it because you I went through so many roller coaster rides through my life and journey ups and downs, highs and lows, through lots of things. And I suppose sometimes it just you you don't expect it, do you? I think a lot of people that I spoke to or I know now, it's not really what you think about happening in your life are you you know as a professional athlete ex-military soldier you know on the outside so hard but when you get something emotionally happening yeah crash so 2003 is when it really there must be some really sort of unique pressures for athletes yeah i mean when you're doing sport especially at elite level um you've gone for a journey to get there anyway. I mean, I had a dream when I was 14 to be Olympic champion. That's just a fluffy cloud when you're 14. It's not reality. It's a fluffy cloud, but at least it gave me a goal and a vision. And when I had, when I was in sport, I knew I could be good at something. So when you go through a journey where actually, when I became a full-time athlete, everything is consumed by that life because you have a date in the diary when your main championship is at the end of a year, have a Commonwealth Games, European Champs, World Champs or Olympics. And that date's never going to move for you. It's not like work or day, daily life where you can take a day off or you can move it slightly. This is a date in a diary. So that's already pressure because you think ahead, whether it's four-year period because of the Olympics or every champs, you think ahead. I have to be at my best at that time. Then you break it all down. And then over those years, you have like three month cycles and you have a monthly program, a weekly program, a daily program. And even in that day, you're breaking down that day to what time you're going to wake up, what you're going to eat, what training time your session is, um, your massage, your recovery, your then the next train session. And even when those sessions, you're thinking of hitting a target and a time and recovery. And if you don't hit the time, are you doing well or not doing well so it's constant in your head so when you're going through that there's a lot of pressure internally and then of course you have your training partners and maybe your coach and your physio who are all part of that journey as well and so it becomes very sort of intense how do you think kind of the competition element affects your mental health personally because I think what you're talking about with how things are so regimented and structured, mm. it's also very easy to track yourself as well because you can say, I'm not meeting this goal or this person is outperforming me. Mm. How do you stay sane with that? Because that <laughs> sounds intense. Well, yeah, sport is very black and white, isn't it? Yeah. There's no grey. You're, you're either winning, losing, getting people, you're not getting a PB. So you know what your expectations are there. So that's one good thing because you know what you've got to do to be good, which maybe in a lot of life it's subjective rather than, you know, kind of there. It's there. Um, you know, the thing is when you're at the top of your game or trying to get to the top of the game, you can't be seen to be a weak character in any sense because your opposition are there for you to beat. And that doesn't really, if it doesn't really make sense, because just because you might not be happy all the time, shouldn't necessarily make you think that your opposition are going to think, oh, you can't run fast. But in your mind, it's like you want that bigger sort of picture to be out there and have that all around you that you're invincible almost, you know, and the best people that win all the time, that's all they think, you know, they just think I'm up here. Everyone else can follow, you know, it's that kind of attitude. So I suppose during when you're competing at a level, you have everything else to contend with. So like just lifestyle generally, getting colds, just getting ill. If you get injured, how do you get over that injury to still be on track? And that was almost my downfall was the fact that I kept getting injured. So when you go and see a physio, that physio is treating an injury. 
So you go on the physio bed, they go straight into that injury. You're crying anyway because they've probably got the elbows in or needles stuck in. But no one ever back then said, how do you actually feel about the injury? Because when you're injured, you're stopping your career. It's like not being able to go into work and you don't earn any money if you don't go into work. You know, you don't get sick pay. You don't, you don't get any penny at all unless you perform at a high level and you win a race somewhere or something. So every time you are injured, you're just thinking championship that's putting me back or you might have to get a time to even be selected for that championship might not even be at those games yet so every time you're injured has a negative hit on the your focus and your confidence and your self-belief and then you start worrying am I going to get back in time am I going to be doing that then that has a negative thought process because when you do get back to training you start training then you start fighting because you think you're behind am I going to agree it's a constant like questioning yourself no one asks you how you feel, what you're thinking when you're injured. They just know that you're down because of that, rather than saying, are you coping with the fact that you're injured? Are you having time out? Are we thinking, have you got other positive things that can make you think that you're going to still be in, uh, back on track and going for your goal? And that's where I think my downfall was and what happened in sport back then is no one actually asked, you know, and you just got on with it. And I suppose you didn't think about it. I didn't even think about it. I was just going through injuries. So I was crying in bed at night because I was thinking, I've got another freaking injury. When they're telling you your career is over and all you've ever wanted in your heart and your head is feeling a champion, and they say your career is going to be over, you don't want to hear things like that. You know, it's just a mind game all the time. And it messes with your sense of self as well. Yeah. you're saying, I am this person, this is what I do. And mm -hmm. when you're injured, you can't be can't that be person. It. Exactly. How did you move on from that time? Well, I do think the saving grace for me was the fact that I still had my dream. You know, I'd won medals at all of those championships. I'd won 10 major medals at all the games that I'd been to. I got bronze at an, an Olympic Games, but it, was never, it wasn't gold. And because I always thought I could be Olympic 1500 metre champion, my goal was to still believe in that. So in 2003 it was the year before Athens. And um, even when I was going through the worst time of my life, training for this world championships I got a silver medal at those world championships around my neck and I thought no one knows what I'm going through yeah I'm standing on this rostrum with a silver medal at world championships and in that that made me feel like anything's actually possible but what I also knew is that I would never achieve my dream unless I keep injury free and I didn't have an illness, you know, I had glandular fever, tonsillitis, ruptured calf, torn Achilles, oh, everything during my athletics, seven years of injuries out of 12 years competing. So it was always that battle, will I, won't I, got, you know. Um, so what I made, the decision was that if I can win a silver medal and no one knows what I'm going through, I know I can be Olympic champion. I just, I don't know what it was, always had it in there. So the thing I needed to do is to make sure those people around me knew I needed their help. I didn't tell anyone what I was going through, but I said to my physio, I'm going to stalk you because I know I can do this if I stay injury free. I just knew it. And my training partner gave up his whole international career that year to be my training partner because he was a bloke. He was better than me, faster than me. He knew that if he helped me, that actually that would inspire and motivate him more. So I just made sure that all the team around me knew that I needed their help. It was almost like a change in language to say, I need you to help me. I can't do this on my own. So what happened was it was the first year in seven years I hadn't been injured. I had a team around me that believed in me, were living my dream. It sounds selfish, but unfortunately as an individual athlete, that's how it goes. And then people go, well, what did your physio get out of it? 
well, my physio was a university physio, worked for Great Britain team. After being a physio to a double Olympic champion, she's now got Olympic champions who she's now a physio to. My training partner never won a major championship medal, helped me for that whole year, got inspired and motivated. He then become world record holder for men's over 40, uh, 1500 meters a mile record holder. So what that meant is that as a, I then thought to myself, these are people that I believe in and believe in me. So when I wrote my autobiography in 2005 and explained about the problems that I'd gone through and how highs and lows, the one thing, not that I regret because I don't live with regrets, but that I wish I'd been able to do was talk to my friends about it. Because when I wrote the autobiography, they were in shock and in tears that I hadn't told them. Was that mm. how they found out? Yeah. From reading it? Yeah. And my mum, everyone, my whole family, everyone. Was that scary to do yeah. and say it that publicly? Yeah, it was. But I felt it was also important because, you know, you can put people on a pedestal and whatever they do in life, put people on a pedestal, whether that's in sport or music or showbiz or whatever. But everyone's human. And so when I wrote it, I felt that if I write the book about my journey to become Olympic champion, one, it has to have everything because it wasn't blooming easy. It wasn't like I just turned up and was suddenly fast, you know. <laughs> so look, I was 34 when I won. I had a 12-year international career, highs and lows. And I thought people need to know their journey so that actually if it inspires anyone to still live with their own dream and their thoughts, that they can still do something, even though they go through depths of despair, it can maybe give hope. That's why I wrote it because I wanted that book to be true to my journey as a sports person. It was hard to see the reaction of my... How did they react? Well, they just weren't angry. Mm. That would be the wrong word, but they were definitely upset because they felt like they should have been there for me in those times. But I said, but I I couldn't have had you around me those times because I wouldn't have wanted my mum to say, come home, you know, or friends say, do you know, is it worth it? I didn't at that time need any extra... Not negative thoughts, because, of course, they would have been supportive. But, you know, when something's really emo emotive, emotional, and they're caring and whatever, and you in your head is, like, quite dogmatic and I've got to do this, I want to stay on track with the focus. But that's being an elite athlete needing that. I think everybody else around, definitely, and not saying elite athletes don't, but you have to talk. And I realise now the power of talking, because it can just take that weight off your shoulders so much more, and you deal with it in a different way you have other people make you see it in a different way and maybe back then it may have helped but I don't know so in talking about depression and self-harm have you had um, some interesting responses from other elite athletes because you were saying earlier on there's this idea that you have to be essentially bulletproof in everything so mm. physically but also mentally have you been surprised by some of the responses you've had yeah I mean so I actually started um, my own charity in 2008, so now 11 years, Dame Claims Trust, because I wanted to help sports people transition from sport. Because what was happening was, so I retired, two gold medals, only person in Great Britain since 1920-odd to win two gold medals, brilliant. Loads of doors open, do different things, a uh, very different world to what it is now because on Facebook, no, nothing was there then. <laughs> um, so different way of being in the media and a lot of my, uh, you know, sporting buddies had given up as much time in their career, not given up, but put as much time into their career as I had. I've been committed, driven, been successful. But what do they do after? Because no one remembers the silver medalists. No one actually remembers these days, even one gold 
one one getting a gold if you don't get two or three you're kind of not up there so if you actually look at that spectrum of hundreds and hundreds of international sports people being really successful what did they do when they finish because most of them give up their careers as a whatever they did before they became an international athlete and became full-time maybe education if you're a gymnast or something very young what they don't have is the tools to understand how to use the skill set in a different environment. I was very lucky, hadn't been in the military, that a lot of my skills have come from that, you know, being able to talk to people, stand in front of people, do fitness, whatever. But um, a lot didn't. And I, when I started the trust, it's because I was speaking to so many people. And in cricket, there's a lot of alcoholism, a lot of depression was happening. And they were opening up to me because I had been the one that had been open and now I'd retired. These were all retired thinking, well, I can't tell anyone. What do I do with my life? So I started the charity that originally was helping uh, athletes transition. And then I realized that that's not charitable. Who's going to care? You know, it's like, uh, who's going to care that you're feeling low and you, you know, you've done your sport. And I thought, gosh, because it's back in a real weird time when no one was talking about it. So my charity actually helps disadvantage young people in area areas of deprivation learning resilience and skills sets and our athletes now are mentors so in turn it helped the athlete find who they were empower young people made them feel good during that journey they decide on the skill set and what they want to do and they're helping a young person that could be also in despair in a different way of their lives actually feel better about themselves so so it's, so it's pairing up uh, elite athletes um, yeah. who are now retired with younger people who are sort of on that road to sort of trying to find something yeah so from areas of deprivation they could be carers could be the parents could be in prison for whatever reason um definitely probably um not in education or training and employment so these are good kids that need that role model and mentor and mm-hmm. what you see with the power of an athlete that can say you know you go for highs and lows you pick yourself up you go again you know the resilience confidence all the skills that you learn as a sports person are so great when you're interacting with a young person that thinks like oh i don't care in life um we've had some amazing results helped over three hundred thousand young people in the uk and transitioned nearly 700 sports people which is pretty big numbers when you just talk mm. about sport mm. at the top level thinking well why do they need help because actually a lot of them do what do you think needs to change about kind of the world of sport and the industry to help people when they're going through kind of the difficult bits like you did mm. and when they're retiring and moving on or they have an injury sport has really moved forward you have so many different aspects of it from a technology point of view whether it's data analysis or you know even the simple things like time coming everything is so advanced now and the teams around some of the sports like uh, cycling i mean geez they're down to the last minute like um paper thin weight of their bike or something you know it's also very much there for them but where we used to have psychologists in they now need to look at other type of support because a psychologist in my mind, sports psychologist, I never saw one, even though I had like the ups and downs. Because I'm like, you're going to help me get on the track and run a fast race. You're not. I'm going to run it. I would have needed a psychologist as every time I walked out in the stadium, I was physically sick or think, God, I can't do this. You know, I needed somebody to calm me. Whereas what you need is somebody there that you can talk to when it is going all wrong. You know, when you've you've maybe given up your career, you've put your whole heart and soul into quite a small period of your life. Remember, a lot of people retire before they're even 30. Retire, (laughs) you know. You put your life into that small window 
and you've got to get everything out of it in that time because that's make or break. You know, if you're really successful, other things can come off it. If you're semi-successful, what do you do next? So I think you need that bit. So that's what's happening now that are actually recognizing the other sort of medical support services that you need to be able to express yourself a bit and help them through the ups and downs. You know, I think the big thing in sport in the UK is that recognize the skill sets of sports people for sport for good as well. You know, they get a lot of funding now in sport. It's huge. So it allows people to do their thing. But actually, if you had a system in part that a year after you retire, you have to do a certain amount down on the ground and helping young people or helping sport, that would be show social return on investment. Mm. You know, every time we do the lottery and it's going to a sports person or whatever, we could actually go, it benefits society. So I think somewhere down the line, there'll be those positive changes in that sense. But for mental health, I think, um, you know, it's not just it's in every industry, but in sport. I think it's now become a little bit more open that we can talk about it. There's still some sports that are not, they're not going to, you know, mm. you're going to rugby team. Are you going to say you're struggling? It's like being in a workplace, isn't it? Are they going to judge you and think, oh, geez, you know, they're not going to be on it each time we come out. So how can they be part of the team? And it's starting those stigmatisms saying that, no, 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 I might be suffering. But I can still catch a ball, you know, <laughs> I might be suffering. But I can still run fast. So it's having that kind of debates around why do I need to be open to you because mm. there's emotional things going on here if I solve them are we the best person I can ever be you know if I don't solve them you're only getting 90% of me it's the same in the workplace isn't it if you mm. can help somebody express what's happened maybe behind closed doors or they come to work and you can actually have the safe place where you can talk and open up they'd be more proactive at work because that bit's relief has been taken off their shoulders and, oh, they care about me. I can get on with it, but I can go and sort someone. So I do a lot of talks for uh, corporates now and it is about mental health in the workplace and how to get the best out of your organisation. And the only way you can do that is to have a support mechanism to help people. We're all human. We've all got a life. We leave work, we go home. <laughs> and somewhere in that mix, something could go wrong. I have to ask, I suppose, what's your, what are your big aims now and sort of what keeps you on track? Because you've had this incredible high, like a lot of athletes, but, you know, you in particular with, you know, gold medals, you've had that moment, which, you know, most people can only dream of. <laughs> and then afterwards, yeah, what do you do? Like, was there a place in your life when you were just sort of kind of floating around, not really knowing what to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, sub- subsequently, how have you sort of decided what to, to work for next? You don't think about that outcome. You're just driven towards it. You know, then suddenly you have it. And it's like, ah, what do I do? I have no idea. I carried on for a year, retired in 2000, end of 2005. 2006, really hard year, lost lost my identity, didn't know who I was, didn't have a clue what I was going for in life, just didn't know. I was fortunate that I had lots of things I was doing at the time, but I didn't know who I was. And I felt that for a long, long time, you know, and I suppose more as time goes on, you feel your feet you know you learn more you see have more opportunities you also mentioned the army earlier as well yeah. which i find very interesting um because i think uh, more recently you were involved again with, with things with them but that's how you started your career mm. how did that help you in terms of your own sort of mental health and also would you be all right talking about sort of the particular challenges for people within that mm-hmm. yeah so i joined the army at 17 wanted to be a physical training instructor in the army since I was 14. was an academic at school, so it kind of felt like, oh, I could be a career that I could go into, join the army, 
was a heavy goods vehicle driver. Very irrelevant to this conversation, but relevant to the fact that I didn't get what I wanted when I was younger. So, And then I transitioned, became a physical train instructor. So at a very early age, I achieved my first dream since I was 14, become a physical train instructor in the army. Then I had my Olympic one to go. During my army career, taught me a lot about myself as an individual, discipline, respect for other people, you know, all the values, courage that the army entail. I recently got made a colonel in the Royal Armoured Corps, which is um, what's unique about it, I suppose, is that it was a change in army policy and signed off by the Queen because it's the only person, male or female, that's actually attached to a regular unit. And this regular unit is the Royal Armoured Corps, which has um, it's more about infantry combat roles. So I get to go in tanks and things. So it's quite fun. That's um, amazing. <laughs> um, What's good about getting back in is now they are very much looking at the mental health of soldiers that are already serving, where we have obviously a, a slight issue or big issue is that in previous years, you get what everyone will know as um, PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder. So a lot of military personnel that are leaving, coming towards their career, are known to have had that. And then that's caused a lot of things around homelessness, depression, alcoholism, self-harm, suicide, all of those things. So we know it's big. The forces are now trying to put things in place. Uh, for example, my course, so the Royal Armour Corps, they have a man there that's now leading on their mindfulness sessions. And they do that now after every PT session, physical training session. They now have a 10 to 15 minute mindfulness uh, session and that's been implemented because somebody was passionate and making changes and they're trying to make that now something across the board in the army I think that's a positive way to go because I think of the past they've had a lot of criticism about not supporting soldiers af after they've served and that has obviously caused a big problem and impact but you know we are now talking about it. So you can say what we should have done. But again, even it doesn't matter what industry you're in. No one was really talking about it. Mm. Now we are. So I think we can only look forward and go, what can we do to make changes? And what can we do to be positive? So the army now starting to think about it. We're now doing it in society. Long way to go. But it started. Mm. And the more of us that keep talking about it, the more it normalizes the situation, the more it makes people think, oh, other people have had this. I'm not on my own. And the more services will start to support it because they realise it's needed. Yeah. And I think that's the only way. The more we keep talking about it, the more society is going to have to say, okay, what are we going to do about this? We need to put things... So it can only be a positive thing going forward because there will be more services. There will be more support. There will be more money that comes. It might take a while, but it will happen. Mm. So that's why I, I choose to do it now. And that's why... I'm in the space now of doing things that I believe are important, like, you know, writing my book and doing the podcast with Audible was two things I'm really passionate about. Yeah, I think it's fantastic to hear that those things are happening now in the army, because I think of all the the places to work, um, I think that's definitely an area where people assume it's it might be like the hardest place to have a conversation about mental health. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, just saying someone's come up with the idea of mindfulness, you know, that might seem like a, a small thing, but it's a start, isn't it? It's like it's addressing the whole idea of mental health issues. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Because it's like in lots of industries, it is that taboo thing and, you know, you can't be looked to see weak but you know we all live our lives trying to be the best version of ourselves trying to get through life some things are brilliant fun energetic exciting and some aren't mm -hmm. you know and sometimes we have bad days and actually some people have a lot of bad days mm. so it's just identifying that in society generally 
um, maybe because of stresses, maybe because of social, maybe because of, you know, life has changed, it's pretty tough out there, that more people are being known to have a problem just because we're opening up. It's sure. always been there. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like anything's new. It's, everyone's always had a struggle somewhere, but now it's almost kind of like, oh, blatantly obvious that we all, you know, if, if one in four people are going to be diagnosed with a mental health problem and pretty much everybody knows somebody that struggled along the way yeah then there's a big problem in society generally that we need to just support how's your mental health personally me question (laughs) (laughs) um i learned to cope with situations so have i been depression since then yes anxiety yes stress or just yes all of those things but i learned to see signs and to realize you know where i'm getting to in a place so yeah even now you know i've got some insomnia at the moment not sleeping very well i was a bit stress breakdown i think or whatever um or burnout probably the best word a couple of weeks ago and so i decided i have got to go to the doctor then and just tell them and just get blood tests or something because i could feel that sort of steady decline down and so i've got some sleeping tablets and you know try and get back but it was because i recognize that's not me generally Mm. You when know. you do recognise the signs, what yeah. do you do? Do you have kind of coping mechanisms in place or therapy? I am like the old-fashioned Duracell battery bunny, you know, that literally goes, 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 and keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, and then finally it just goes in one go. You know, I'm not a person that's kind of just on that steady kill. I'm just, you know, on it. And it's not good. I mean, it's just not good, is it? It's not healthy to be that way, but you can't change who you are as a person. So what I do is... When I started to recognise it, I took a couple of days off. I just don't take time off. And I just said, no, I've got to, I'll just change things. I knew I was getting run down because I was getting the same things as everyone. And I lost my voice completely, like for four days, didn't even have a whisper. And then I'm feeling like lethargic and then a bit kind of irritable and just a bit low generally. And I thought, hold on, this isn't just that I've got a cold. Mm. I've done too much. And by me doing much is making my mental health not good because I'm getting a bit low I didn't have the enthusiasm to go in the gym and gym is what makes me feel good so if I'm not having the enthusiasm to go in the gym which is something that makes me feel good then I'm not in a good place so I'll go in the you know I like having me time like even if it's 10 minutes go in the bath have my Epsom salts in there put my candles on put some music on the side and just chill close my eyes and don't care about what anyone else thinks feels stop looking at the phone do little things that can help and see my mates, you know, that makes me feel really good. I didn't really see them a lot when I was competing or even in the last few years because I'm so damn busy. And then when I lost my mum in 2017, I went for a really bad whole year of bereavement. Again, nothing that anyone can tell you how to deal with or cope with. And that then brings on bits of like mental health because mental bereavement isn't a mental health problem, but through bereavement, you can start getting them again. And I just thought to myself, the only people that are going to help me get out of that is the people that I trust who are close to me so I started to I remember after not telling my friends that if I'm ever in a bad place again I needed to call them so over the years when I've been in a bad place I just text them and they go all right what do you need something's wrong I'm coming around you know and it was just that association and it's not that I really need my mates to do anything but just talk to me about anything that they know about you know just to get me out of a little 
spot. So I see my friends more. I definitely talk a lot more. That helps me. And then I have a few moments of me time. So I might put a, a mindfulness app on or like I say, I'll go in the bath or I'll take a couple of days off and I just don't do anything. And I tell people, do you know, what? I don't want to do anything. I don't actually want to interact. And it's not because I'm in a bad place. I'm not going to do anything. I just feel I need time out. And they accept it. And some of my friends come round, we just watch a movie and don't have to talk. Could you tell us a bit about your um, fantastic new podcast, please? Um, so it's called uh, What Do I Do? Mental Health and Me. And you've got some incredible guests mm. and it's out now on Audible. So, yeah, yes. tell us a bit about why you wanted to do that in the first place. I wanted to do it because when I'm fascinated with other people, I wanted to do it because if I could find some people in the public eye that people were interested in, whether that's an author or um, a, a TV personality or a comedian, that if they were to be able to talk about their own journeys and what's made them in their eyes successful and maybe the pressures they've had to become that, then actually everyday people can go, oh. I'm like, oh, right. You know, because it doesn't, just because you're successful doesn't mean you're invincible in any shape or form. So my whole point was actually it'd be really nice to talk to people in those different type of industries about them and how they've coped with situations that have not been great at different times, but yet they're still being successful. You know, it shouldn't define who you are by having a problem. It's part of who you are. And how you use that side of you can be a strength or weakness. But actually, if you actually realize that most people can get through their dark times, might take a while, might still have part of it, might still be gray in your life. But a lot of the times there's people that can have happy days or get through a period of time. And I, that's how I try and express it, that, you know, problems that I have don't define me, still international athlete I still a soldier by heart as you know I'm a colonel I'm a dame I'm this I do this I've you know I've been national school sport champion I've done a lot of things but I still struggled so it's kind of yeah people will see it that way but I hope actually it inspires people more than anything I think it will and it's important yeah. to be open I think because it's not an easy ride you know, some people might have the luxury of a really easy ride and suddenly, yeah, it's all great. But I didn't have a rich family, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I haven't, I, you know, I'm not putting that down as in things, but most people just go through life having a job, do their piece, trying to be good, do successful. I just had a talent that I didn't give up on. And that's why I was successful. There's a lot of runners out there. A lot of people could be brilliant at everything in life. A lot of people give up too easy because it becomes hard. I just refuse to give up and I'm the fortunate one that then achieved those dreams. But by being fortunate, I can say to people, actually dreams do come true and actually there is a journey to most people's stories. So I kind of have both sides of it, the, the realism around it's not always easy and also the other side to say that actually some people can still be really successful, but you've got to have it in your heart and you've got to have it in your head. And that's what keeps me going. If you've been affected by any of the issues we discussed today, please contact the Samaritans on 116-123 or go to the website at samaritans.org. We're also on Twitter at MentallyYRS. 
Thanks very much to our producer, Sam Bonham, and to Lucy Baker for the jingles. And obviously to Kelly Holmes for coming and chatting to us today. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.